All right. Today we talked with Yoav. Let's hear what he has to say. Hey, everyone. This is Yoav Schlesinger. I am a principal of ethical AI practice at Salesforce, where I help our product teams and others think about the responsible and ethical development and deployment of our artificial intelligence. All right. Today we spoke with Yoav, and I want to welcome you if this is your first time listening to Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to explore some of the greatest questions that stem from AI and related technologies. I'm your host, Demetrios Brinkman, and the way that we're exploring these questions is by having some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields come on here and talk with me about what they're doing, how they're doing it, if there's any best practices that we can take away from it. I will mention too that we do not finish the conversation here. If you would like to continue speaking about any of the topics or themes that you see on this podcast, please join our Slack community. You can find all the information for that below. It's a place where we are all getting together and discussing these top of mind questions that stem from AI ethics, AI governance. Now, I will finish this by giving a huge shout out to our sponsor, Ethics Grade. They have been sponsoring us since the get-go. And so I am sure if you have watched this more than once, you know that I am a fan and I am eternally grateful for what they are doing. You've heard me say it many times, but it bears repeating. They're an ESG ratings company, which means they rate and they measure the non-financial impacts that companies have on the world. They've just put their first cohort of data into the public domain. So if you're curious about comparing AI governance between companies such as Tesla and Toyota or TikTok and Twitter or Alibaba and Amazon, then definitely go check out their site and have a little play around with it. So Ethics Grade, thank you again for sponsoring us. And now let's get into this incredible talk with Yoav. Excellent, Yoav. It's amazing to sit down with you. I'm really thankful that you have done this. It's great to have you here, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot that I want to dive into. I think the first thing that we should ask is about how you came to be where you're at. Um, maybe not in such a philosophical sense, but <laughs> what was your trajectory like and how did you wind up at Salesforce? It's a great question. And it was a very circuitous route to getting here. Um, very uh, anachronistic, I guess, in a lot of ways. I have a mm -hmm social science and religious studies background academically. So as an undergraduate at oh, Stanford, nice. I studied um, political science, Jewish studies, actually wrote an honors thesis about uh, Islamic ethics of war um, oh, wow. and sort of how Islam was used rhetorically to justify um, normative behaviors in the Iran-Iraq war. Very obscure, uh, but this was pre-11. Yeah. Um, and so I was already getting interested in sort of normative behavior, behaviors, values-driven approaches to how people um, activate on shared principles and beliefs, et cetera. And that kind of led me into, frankly, a 15-year career in nonprofit work. Um, 
small community-based organizations that, again, were sort of activating groups of people around shared mission, shared values and principles. Um, and that was what really activated me. In about 2017, spring of 2017, having emerged from the 2016 U.S. elections, um, kind of had this sense that technology had an important role to play also in Mm. um, activating people and how it had an important role to play in society. And so I made a pivot out to Omidyar Network, which was the venture philanthropy founded by Pierre Omidyar, founder of eBay was doing some work okay, in responsible yes. technology development generally, investment in sort of pro-social technology and creating movements behind responsible tech. Got really activated and energized by that community and found that the ethical AI space was particularly intriguing to me. And so made the jump over to an internal corporate team doing that work, really trying to put pe- the pedal to the metal, if you will, um, about 18 months ago. And I've been at Salesforce since then. And... I mean, a lot of people know Salesforce. It's a gigantic company, right? You're, they're doing so many different things. Where does the ethical part come in? Like, what's your day-to-day like there? And what are you helping them work on? Right. So Salesforce is, you know, probably the biggest company you've never heard of. All right. Yeah. Um, so people are interacting with Salesforce all the time and are, all the time yeah. and are not even aware of it. Right. If you're conducting a transaction with, you know, a major e-retailer, if you're calling in for customer service um, to your local cable company, if you are stranded on the side of the road and have a tow truck come out to help jump your car, right? You're probably interacting with Salesforce. So in all of those areas, you know, AI is rapidly becoming an integrated part of the experience for the people doing that work. If it's in a retail context, like I mentioned, maybe our AI is making recommendations to a customer about the kinds of products they may want to be looking at. If we're talking about customer service, like I mentioned, well, then maybe the AI is beginning by interacting as a chatbot with a a consumer and then handing off to an agent for an escalation. Uh, or maybe it's creating automatic case wrap-ups for that agent to facilitate their workflow. If it's uh, a tow truck coming to the side of the road, maybe that schedule um, has been automated, right, in providing worker-centric scheduling so that tow truck driver can identify, you know, when they're best available and the AI assigns accordingly based on location or route mapping, et cetera. So AI is integrated everywhere throughout our product. And as a result, we have to be thinking about how we do that development in a responsible, empowering, inclusive, transparent way, both to enable the admins, the people setting up those systems, uh, um, as well as the end users, the people who receive that service, that they are have trust in the system um, and that it can be done in a way that empowers them and preserves their human rights and safety and all those sorts of things. So all of that is a long way of saying my role is to work with our product teams, our research scientists, our engineers, our data scientists, our product managers, our UX designers, the whole range of stakeholders within the organization to think through how to best build those products and what kinds of guardrails to set up, 
what kinds of guidance to offer, how to develop features that enable our customers to make thoughtful and responsible decisions about how they deploy their AI. It's fascinating to me that you get to touch so many different pieces of the puzzle. And I think that is a sign of a well-built system, right? Because it's not just the machine learning engineers that are doing this. It is. It has so much of a holistic view when you really look at it and you're talking about how many different ways this can be used. So you need to be thinking through so many different scenarios and situations. And one thing that popped up in my head when you were talking about how, okay, there are the business owners that are using Salesforce and then there are the end users who are basically getting the Salesforce experience. They're both kind of end users uh, for Salesforce. And so that ethical approach too for the business owner who is using some kind of AI, I imagine you have to think through how is it, how can they not take advantage of this or not abuse this? Uh, so I'm sure it's fun. You get to stay busy all the time. Um, and... Definitely busy. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, no, but that's to be right. honest, that's, you know, what you point out is exactly right. We have to be thinking about both the B2B use case and the B2C use mm-hmm. case in almost yeah. every instantiation of our product. Right. So how do we help? Um, how do we develop the product? so that it is responsible in the first place. So if we're building a global model, right, how do we ensure that we've mitigated bias in that model, right, ensured representation and diversity in the data set, et cetera. So one, how do we build our own products? Two, how do we help our B2B customers implement those products responsibly? And then lastly, how do we help guide them so that their end users experience the product and we limit harms and ensure right responsible development and deployment for those people. So we sort of have three areas that we touch. Mm, yeah, makes complete sense. Now, all of these use cases, though, I would say that they seem pretty tame. I imagine there is some things that are more high high risk. You could say because I think about a company like Salesforce and the immense amount of data that they have, right? And the immense, just, it's it's like you said, the biggest company you've never heard of. Uh, some people, if you've been in sales, you've definitely heard of it. And you know that everything about your prospect is in there. And so are there protocols set up for the way that you use data? And how was that set up if there are? Yeah, so I think the first thing that's really important to call out is that we don't access or view our customers' data unless they've given explicit permission to us for the use of that data in some way to build a global model or something like that. So we are, you know, by GDPR standards, a data processor, not a data controller. Um, All of that data sits and resides within one of our customers' organizations, and we don't touch it. So what that means is there is an additional layer of complexity, right, even beyond what I already articulated, which is... We can't even see how our customers are using their data. Uh, So it's not necessarily the case that we know all of their use cases, that we know how they're deploying their data, et cetera. So we 
can take a role as a trusted advisor, as a right in our help documentation or our setup flows, et cetera, to help uh, set up the system so that data, right, are being securely stored, right? All those kinds of things for compliance or ethics or otherwise. But at the end of the day, the decisions that are made about that is our customers' decisions. Uh, that's great to know. Good. And thanks for clarifying too, because these days I am defaulting to, <laughs> oh yeah, that's just, they take all the data. Every The company is like, uh, looking at my everything, at my every move. And so it's nice to hear that they're not doing it and that it's you made that clear. So I don't just think like, oh yeah, Salesforce knows everything about me. Uh, but I wanted to jump into more of this idea that you talked with a colleague of mine about the other day on like, can every problem be fixed by tech? I think that's a fascinating question and I'd love to get your take on it. Yeah. Um, I don't know who coined the term techno-solutionism, um, although <laughs> I know Meredith Broussard coined the term techno-chauvinism, I believe, in her book. Um, and so I need to credit her at the very least for that term. Um, there has been, and I think there persists, this idea that technology it can solve every problem, as you said. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's certainly not the case from my perspective, right? Certain human problems require human solutions. Uh, and assuming that human problems can always be solved by technological solutions means that techno-chauvinism persists and we find ourselves exacerbating the human problems rather than ameliorating them, right? Um, and so there are best use cases for technology where there are certain cases where it can and should likely replace humans, right? Uh, there are certainly cases where it is best to augment humans. And then there are places where technology probably shouldn't be used at all and only humans should attempt to solve the problem. So I think there are kind of three buckets that are probably worth considering when thinking about whether or not to deploy a technological solution. So it's not just the can we, but the should we question that yeah. should really be centered in the conversation. I love that. I say that quite a bit too. The question is not can we, but should we? It's very much needed right now, especially when you get some gung-ho engineers that are like, oh yeah, let's let's go after it. That's definitely a nut that we can crack. And I think there's two pieces, right? Like you mentioned there is a lot of tech that can help get rid of things like the mundane tasks that we're doing. There's also tech that can help augment what we're doing and help us do it better and help us see things more clearly. And then there's tech where, or there's, situations where tech shouldn't even be a question. It shouldn't even be involved in that. What are some of those use cases you feel like tech shouldn't come into the picture? I mean, I think that there are cases where the risk to humans, right, is significant enough that it's probably a job not suited for an AI or a robot, right? Um, so 
you know, you think about, I don't know, informing someone of a cancer diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably not a job that's well suited for an AI, right? It still requires a human empathetic or empathic response, right? Which as much as people like to talk about AI, how AI can learn empathy, it, it, <laughs> we're not there, right? <laughs> we're, yeah. we're certainly not there um, and cannot be replaced, right? Um, and in the same way in a medical care context, you know, um, a robot today at least should not be deployed to inject a syringe into a patient's arm, right? A nurse is still needed to do that, to bring the human touch to that interaction. And so I think that the category I would try to create if I were forced to do that would be a place where empathy is needed, where human connection, authentic human connection is needed, um, or a layer of judgment uh, and wisdom that can't be brought by a technological solution. It's funny you mentioned that because we, I'm just like one of my other windows open right now on my screen is the Slack community that we have. And one of the channels that we have is uh, technical barriers to trust. Mm. And what you speak of, like this idea of a syringe going into someone that's not really a technical barrier, right? Like the, or the technical barrier that is there is that you can't have that sensitivity that you get from a human, at least not now. And who knows in a hundred years or in 10 years, if that will be possible. But I like that. That's one of the use cases that I, I would have never thought about. Um, especially when you're seeing movies where you're like getting people lined up and they're just getting shots or whatever. And, and considering we are in a stage right now in society where a lot of people are getting shots mm -hmm. and it would be something I'm sure somebody has brought it up that we should bring technology into this. It's very interesting to think about that idea like, no, technology should stay out of that one. And let's just keep this for us humans. Right. Yeah, and I think the point you raise about, right, um, <laughs> particularly in the COVID-19 pandemic context, right, there are so many ways that we can and have and will deploy technology in that mm. context, right? But it's a pretty prime example, I think, of where the interface between humans and technology matters a tremendous amount, right? Because it brings the human element of health and well-being and even mortality together with policymaking and decision-making as well as technological solutions. And the intersection or junction between all three of those areas creates this fascinating place where we can have really interesting conversations about ethics and equity in a way I've never seen before in the context of a technological solutionism, right? It's not often that you see equity centered in a conversation about how do we deploy technology. Um, but, it, but we've seen it over the last few yeah. weeks and months. Um, 
which is just fascinating to me as a person who's intrigued by, you know, again, normative behaviors and values. I'm like, wait a second, people are talking about this in mainstream contexts. How interesting is that? <laughs> yeah, there is one thing that I wanted to raise with the idea of where we're at right now. And we are recording this in early March. And right now we're in the midst of a vaccine being rolled out, right? You especially, you're in the US and it's all over the place. I'm in Germany. It's also all over the place. They're trying to get as many needles in people as possible. I think you raised the idea of this vaccine passport and we've seen it already kind of happening in Israel. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, digital health credentials, such a mm. fascinating area, I think, and soon to be a rapidly accelerating area as both civil society and governments try to figure out how to do things like cross-border travel and sort of interoperable standards for recognizing health credentials um, as the private sector figures out how to get people into stadiums or concert venues or grocery stores uh, um, in employer context, right? So making sure if you want that your employees have been vaccinated or have tested negative for COVID, right? There are so many places where in order to wow. quote unquote return to normal, separate conversation, whether that's even possible, um, <laughs> people will want and or need the ability to identify the fact that people are not uh, likely to spread a contagious disease. So what does that mean? Um, I think it means a couple of things. One is it's really important, and, and there are a set of principles I think underlie all this, but number one, it's really important that we not confuse digital vaccine credentials or passports with digital health credentials, right? Especially right now at this moment where vaccines are rolling out and that distribution is unequal, uh, it, not the whole population has been vaccinated, etc. So people need to be presented the option to either be vaccinated or tested negative at this point, right? Demanding only vaccination doesn't work for, at least in the U.S., whatever it is, 80% of the population that hasn't yet been vaccinated. So to ensure equity, um, digital health credentialing is, I think, a more valuable approach than digital vaccination credentialing. So that's number one. Number two is any effort to do this needs to have trust, privacy, and security built in from the outset, right? We're talking about very sensitive private health data. And so, uh, users of these digital wallets or whatever else should be able to have trust that their data are being um, securely stored. And then they should be able to selectively disclose those data to the right kinds of verifiers um, and to ensure that um, they're only disclosing the minimal amount that is required for the use, right? Whether that's getting yeah. on an airplane or whatever else. Um, we need to ensure that inclusion and equity are built in from the beginning as well, right? So there's 20% uh, of U.S. consumers don't have access to a smartphone. 
uh, or don't own a smartphone. So how do you have a paper first or paper credentialing that goes alongside a digital uh, solution that allows people to present a paper version of their QR code or confirmation code or credential or whatever else in addition or as a substitute for um, the digital credential? We have issues around identity binding, right? So how do I ensure as a governance question that I haven't just handed you my smartphone with my credential on it um, for you to scan into a concert venue, right? So we need to somehow connect the fact that you are you with that credential and not um, me with your credential, right? Um, So there's just this whole swirling set of issues that need to very, very rapidly get figured out because uh, as you said, Israel's already starting to deploy this. Basically, everyone over the next, I think, two to three months will be attempting um, with competing standards, competing governance regimes, competing operating systems. um, Mm -hmm. And all of that is going to require a sort of intersectoral, multi-stakeholder conversation to create very rapidly a governance system for a thing that it will be entirely new for the vast majority of the people of the world. What really sounds like a mess to me is something I hadn't even thought about, but as you raised it, it was like, ooh, is the securing that our data is going to be used for only this specific purpose and we only can share it or we only share it with who we want to share it, right? And then they can't turn around and go and share that data with anyone else. Because I'm thinking about like, yeah, concert venues or employers, or any of that, if they can reuse that data, that is, and they get too much data, right? That's just, it sounds horrible. And there's so many different pieces that you're speaking of. Like, yeah, Israel's already bringing its own or trying to implement its own like uh, vaccine green card, right? And then you have, let's say where I'm at in Germany, they start trying to implement that too. But what are the standards so that I can travel to Israel and I can show my German vaccine in Israel? Or like, and then there's the whole other question that is, I know a lot of people that don't want to get a vaccine. And so what they're just going to be left out or people that uh, potentially have had the virus already and so now they have to go and get a test that shows they have the antibodies or uh, there's a lot to be questioned here and like how is it going to work and who is (laughs) what it kind of worries me is you're the first person to tell me about this (laughs) (laughs) who is talking about this who is looking at all of this like yeah so there are a couple of uh projects that i know of that are trying to answer this. So the World Health Organization is attempting to create some set of standards or governance for this. Um, The Commons Project uh, is also an attempt to do this. The Vaccine Credential Initiative is one that's trying to do this, as well as the Good Health Pass Collaborative being run out of ID2020. Those are all complementary, overlapping kinds of approaches where they're all trying to assess and set out principles or practices or standards for how to make this work. 
but it's not clear who's got, which of those standards or principles will emerge, who will ultimately be responsible for implementing yeah. those standards. You know, we, we figured this out with passports, right? It's probably the best known governing regime for this kind of interoperable standards or even e-passports where governmental entities, right, yeah. have a set of recognized standards um, that require identity binding at the outset, right? So when you go to apply for a German passport, they're making very sure you are you before issuing that passport. And then it's known and accepted wherever German Definitely. citizens with a, or people carrying a German passport can travel, right? Um, and it's interoperable and there's both a paper version and a digital version, right? And so there is precedent for figuring this out, yeah. but I don't know exactly how long the passport regime took to come into effect and to be agreed upon. That would be an interesting question to sure. uh, ask and answer. Digital health credentials. It's, you know, we're going to rapidly accelerate whatever that time frame was. We're going to accelerate into the time frame of a few weeks or months at this point, not years or decades. Yeah. And it feels like it's a different beast altogether because one hand you're talking about an identity and on the other hand you're talking about health which can change and it's in flux right and so there is a little bit of uh it's yeah it's a beast of a thing to think about and i hadn't even pondered any of that but now it is very much in our face like you say it's going to happen whether we like it or not the protocol is needing to take place right now. And so hopefully we can agree on something, some kind of standards as a, as humanity. But, uh, wow, that's, those are big words to say. Right. It sounds a little bit like, all right, let's, uh, let's all get together and figure it out. And it is on one hand, I imagine it's going to be the developed nations that are going to figure this out. Right. So, or they're going to be the ones that come out with the protocol. And I'm not saying that they're going to figure it out for better or for, for the better, but it's like, uh, I think about how can you include everyone in this conversation? Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because I, my understanding is to a great extent, the global South or the developing world has actually been the place where digital ID has led primarily, right? Because so many people in their populations don't have access to paper uh, credentials, but everyone's got a smartphone. So whether it was Aadhaar in India or the Nigerian digital identification systems, right? It's actually those places that have implemented digital ID already. Um, but oh, interesting. they are likely to be, uh, you know, left behind in many ways, as is the case, unfortunately, with things like, you know, returning to our previous conversation about AI, right? You think about the, the incredible number of sets of AI principles that are out there in the world, right? I think I read some paper that 1180 separate sets of principles or charters or articulations of values exist around AI, 80% uh, of those come from the, you know, developed world, the EU, the US, mm. 
Asia, parts of Asia, um, while only a small number come from Latin America, Africa, um, other developing world nations. And so, right, we do have this challenge in terms of research, AI, science, medicine, standards, all of it, right, of giving uh, equal and diverse representation for those conversations so that even something like, you know, where do our data come from and who is represented in the populations of our data sets, right, don't just represent white men sitting in California, which, um, you know, yeah. technology has been known to only build for those people. So uh, that is an important consideration. Yeah, that's an interesting fact that I had no idea about of the digital identities, and it makes complete sense. And so maybe there's a little bit of hope in that with they can help the greater, uh, the greater world to say, hey, look, here's how we did it. Maybe we can go along and try and do something like this. And wow, I just can't help but think what a big piece of news or big big piece of the problem or the it's a it's a really big obstacle that we need to overcome and we need to overcome it quickly as we try to get back to normal as you said or whatever as close as we can to normal and i think about also when we're looking at these different things there was something that you had spoken about before about like uh, biometrics and having different, um, like for, for example, smartwatches or uh, rings and being able to use those potentially as your vaccine passport or uh, as your health passport when you go through. But then I know there is this argument that is it's excluding a lot of people who are not going to go out and pay top dollar for a smartwatch, right? So maybe we could talk about that for a minute. Yeah. And before we do it, I just want to say one last thing about the digital health credentialing, um, which is that it's a perfect example, actually, of what we were talking about before, which is, you know, human problems requiring human solutions. There are mm. technical aspects of this conversation, certainly, uh, you know, what, um, whether it's blockchain encrypted technology or however we think about the technical pieces of the problem. But governance is a human question. It's not, it's not a question that can be answered by a technology. And we all do, in fact, need to sit at a table and hash it out how we're going to operate a global system to, that recognizes all these various um, issuers and verifiers and credentials and wallets and all that sort of thing. Now, hopping to biometrics. Governance is a human. Yeah, exactly. Human yeah. problem, human solutions. Um, yeah. Biometric wearables is a really interesting space uh, for COVID in particular, but in general for health. Um, you know, there, there was some good research out of the University of California, San Francisco, that showed some degree of predictive power behind... Um, biometric wearables in being able to identify the COVID pre-symptomatically, essentially, um, based on respiration or temperature fluctuations, whatever 
um, data were being sucked in by the wearable, which is, you know, really encouraging, actually, as a, you know, application of AI that has potentially really positive implications, right? But there's competing research at the same time that shows that the green lead light used by most biometric wearables as opposed to red lead um, light is less effective on darker skin tones. And so um, measuring, and I think the Apple Watch had this issue, possibly Fitbit as well, um, right? There was some research that showed that it was less accurate on reading temperature for darker skin toned individuals. So that means that the research needs to explore the efficacy of biometric wearables in predicting COVID onset for those populations specifically, right? Which I don't think we're accounted for yet. So that's a really critical research area. Um, but the point you also raised is about inclusion and consent, right? And all these other, again, human questions um, that need to be answered around these things too. So, you know, it's really easy to imagine if there's a belief that monitoring a person's health symptoms, right, in dynamic real time by use of a biometric wearable is a valuable indicator of a potential COVID risk in a meatpacking plant or a warehouse, then an employer, you could imagine mandating their employees wearing that device for safety protocol, right? Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, how do you ensure that employees have a meaningful opt-in or consent to wearing that device, right? It, if you say you can't come back to work unless you wear this wearable, uh, what are the impacts of people who may choose not to turn over their private health data to their employer, right? Um, even if it's employer provided, even if I say, you know, here, here's your, here's your ring, go and wear it in the factory on the factory floor. Um, it's not clear what the impacts would be for an employer mandate of that sort. Um, and so it's really important that there be opt-in. It's really important, again, that, you know, the data be inclusive. It's really important that there be, um, you know, a, a separate layer of security around those data and privacy around those data, all of which layers up to trust in the system, right? So how do I trust my employer will use these data if I choose to turn them over, that they will use them appropriately and not turn it over to my health provider, right? Um, and that it only be used, for example, to maintain the security of the, right, the meatpacking plant and not turned over to my insurance company. Right. Um, you know, those kinds of things that that are really critical for building trust between employers and employees, building trust in the system in general, building trust in the research and the science, um, which, you know, have also come into question a lot in recent times. So um, a lot of swirling issues around something as simple as a, as a Fitbit or Apple Watch, too. And how do you feel about the idea of us losing a lot of these civil liberties, like this idea that you're talking about, it doesn't seem far-fetched now that we've been in a pandemic for a year. Uh, and if you were to tell me that 
two years ago, it would be like, no way could an employer ever get away with me even thinking about giving them my personal data on my health, right? Unless something crazy happens, which ended up happening. And so now this idea of us losing these civil liberties in a time of crisis, or it's easier to slip under the rug a lot of these civil liberties that we're losing. And then on the flip side, this is where I grapple with this every day when I think about, yeah, but you see there's a lot, there's countries and there are use cases that have been using these, this data well and they've been able to keep the pandemic under wraps. So I think about like what China was able to do with the pandemic and the, the civil liberties is all but out the window, right? And so they just said, this is what you got to do. Here's, here's what is happening. And then I also think about like South Korea and how well they handled the technology and the contact tracing and all of that data being shared and knowing who you've been with and so that they could help prevent the outbreaks. And I think about with the U.S., we would never like let that happen because that is an infringement on our civil liberties, right? But it, would it have been better? And I've talked about this before on the podcast, uh, so we don't need to get too much into that. We can stick to more of the these civil liberties that just kind of get taken away piece by piece maybe, or these things that would have sounded crazy uh, two years ago, now after a year in a pandemic and lockdown and pandemic fatigue, we're like, whatever, take whatever you want from me. If I can go back to being in a place with people and have lunch at a restaurant, right? right. Yeah. So I think it's, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to, so I don't want to pretend to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a meaningful distinction to be drawn between civil liberties, which are right, the relationship between an individual and their government and the privacy or security or whatever else that I may have as an individual with my employer, right? And those are not the same thing. So we were talking before about, you know, employer use cases of a biometric wearable, for example, where, again, not a lawyer, but I would imagine that there are legal regimes that govern the ability of a uh, employer to mandate that, what they can do with that, those data, et cetera, et cetera, which is very different than does my government require me to wear such a, such a device, right? Does my yeah. government require me to turn over personal health data, et cetera? I think there is a good argument to be made for the need for more and better data right full stop in terms of managing uh, pandemic managing right health etc so if we had more and better data leading up to our current point in time in the US that was representative again of even the populations that were inequitably impacted by COVID, for example, right? That we may have been able to make better informed choices about where and when to lock down certain activities or areas, right? Being able to better predict 
mortality or hospitalization rates um, to better prepare and equip health systems to deal with the, imp the impending impacts, right, of COVID or otherwise. So I do believe that, you know, data are useful, <laughs> right? And more and better quality data yields in many cases better quality outcomes. Um, but if it comes at the risks of, right, human rights or equity, et cetera, then you're in the balancing act of what we call ethics, right? <laughs> then you're in the place where now yeah. we have to make these decisions that weigh relative trade-offs and choose a path forward based on the values or principles that we hold dear, right? And so in the United States, we, we, you know, hold dear our First Amendment rights or whatever else you want to think about as sort of fundamental infrastructure yeah. of our, you know, covenants with one another uh, as citizens of the United States or residents of the United States. Um, and so we make that trade-off as a country, right? We weigh the relative merits and benefits of what it would mean to create a different kind of government, and uh, agreement between that government and its residents. It's, yeah, it's ethics. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's the job, yeah. right? Of yeah, the people who think it through and, you know, um, different kinds of governments and different kinds of entities and different types of organizations make different kinds of choices. You know, Salesforce makes different kinds of choices about mm -hmm. the work we do uh, in technology development than other companies do. It's guided by our values of trust, innovation, customer success, equality, right? Like our values inform how we do that work. Others have different values on which they premise their work. And that's okay. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not an absolutist. I am a moral relativist, I guess, in yeah. some ways, um, not in all ways. Uh, and that's all right. Yeah. Well, speaking about the government uh relation with society and the civil liberties and one idea that i've also been pondering quite a bit is how big some of these companies are such as uh, amazon and how amazon knows everything about me right and especially if they had access or they're they're making their play into health healthcare, all of that. And that's like the, the last piece in my mind to finish the circle. They know how much TV I watch. They know exactly what I buy. They know anything they want to know about me. And looking at them as being like more, I'm not going to say more powerful than the government, but they have more knowledge on me than the government. They have more ability to predict things, whether that is showing me a new toy that I might like, or it is my own health. And so I, talk, I talked a few weeks ago about this a little bit, but the idea of them having to share that information with the government and them having to take the, especially when it comes to health, like should that information be mandatory to share because maybe you give it to some scientists and they're able to find a cure for cancer. 
right? Uh, so I, I think it just comes back to your speaking of, hey, yeah, but if you do this stuff, it has to be built with these core principles in the foundation. And that's something that I'm taking away from this conversation is like, when you go out and you're building something from here on out, right? Like since technology is such an important piece of our lives and AI is starting to become more and more intersected or intertwined with our lives, when you're building anything that is tech, AI, or otherwise, like these principles that you're speaking of need to be built in the foundation. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, <laughs> and I think that one of those principles is that people need to control their data, right? Um, mm. And they need to be informed and aware of how those data are being what data are being collected, how they're being used, um, for what purposes, right? And not in 100-page documents of terms and conditions, but in yes. truly, right, meaningfully informed, clear, transparent ways so that if I choose to give my data to, you know, company Foo, that I have... Uh, reasonable expectation that they're being used in a way that I am comfortable with, that I have opted into, that I've given my meaningful consent to have them used in that way. Um, I think that is a critical and fundamental principle that should guide the way we make decisions that impact people and their data. It, it's so funny you speak about that because we had Robbie Stamp on this podcast uh for the first season and he was he was one of the producers of a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and he still is he loves technology and we talked for a while about everything like the future how he sees the future what i thought was interesting in the future but one thing that he really spoke about was this idea of all of your data being fragmented across the internet right? You don't know what your bank data is or what data on you your bank has. And maybe if you have 10 different banks, you don't know all the different data points that each one of those has. And then you go to um, a different company that you interact with. You don't know what data they have on you. And we geeked out a little bit and it was like, wow, maybe a really cool piece of technology would be using machine learning or AI to be like your data bodyguard. And so that anytime you gave out data, you knew where it was being used, how it was being used, you knew who had what data on you, and you could, as easy as revoking a privilege, say, no, I don't want you to have that data. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you could say that across every place that has a particular piece of data on you, right? Exactly. Now, this, this is, you know, it's a pipe dream, at least in the current state of technology. <laughs> but if I wanted to revoke the ability of every retailer, every bank, every insurance company, everything that I've ever interacted with from knowing my address, just as an example, right? Mm -hmm. How could I go through some portal and say, revoke that piece of information from 
everyone all at once, right? And wouldn't that be powerful for consumers? Yeah. Now, it would probably break the internet at this point, right? It would break every system that we've built um, to do something like that. But it would empower uh, consumers around their, the selective disclosure of their data and the way they choose for that to be used. You know, maybe I don't want my zip code being used to target me for particular kinds of ads and marketing yeah. or, um, but, you know, my car insurance uses that to assign premiums, right? And, and, and to charge me accordingly, because, mm -hmm. right, if I live in an urban area, I need to charge a different premium than if I live in a suburban or rural area. Uh, you know, these kinds of things. So it's, the use case matters a tremendous amount for how data are used, right? Um, you know, we have features, for example, uh, in uh, our marketing cloud product. Um, when selecting certain kinds of demographics or attributes for a marketer to create a segment around, right? Um, it'll flag for an admin. Uh -huh. you, you know, you're using a sensitive variable. Are you sure you want to use that? And those kinds of you uh -huh. know sensitive variables may be marital status, gender, age, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, right? All these kinds of things. And there are certain use cases for creating a marketing segment around any one or multiple of those attributes that may be perfectly reasonable, right? So if I'm marketing... Um, a prostate drug, uh, knowing a person's biological sex at birth is an important piece of information around marketing. Now, it's not the only piece of information because I may have a non-biologically born male uh, household member who may be making purchasing decisions, right? So it's not the only, but it may very well be a determining yeah. right variable to build into your model for targeting. What is not useful for that is zip code, right? I don't need to know your zip code in order to send you a digital advertisement for a prostate drug. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, and so the use of data really matters for what you're trying to achieve. And so you have to be really clear about what is your objective and then what data are needed to achieve that objective and only those data, right? Not more, not not less. Otherwise, you reduce accuracy and all that sort of thing. But like, what is the right sized amount of data to achieve the objective that you've set out? Yeah, and I think right now the standard is just try and get as much data as possible. That's right, because you never know what you might be able to do with it, right? Yeah, like, that I think that has been the orientation, right? Let's just collect it because down the road right. we may be able to do something with that. Uh -huh. um, and that that strategy for data governance has not turned out particularly well. <laughs> yeah, we, we all know how that one right. ended up. <laughs> that is great. Well, I have one last question for you. This has been an incredible talk. I appreciate getting to see inside of your head a little bit and also hear your expertise on this. It's been fascinating for me. So the last question is, you have, are you a robot? <laughs> Not to my knowledge, but I may be living in a simulation, so I'm not sure. Uh, to my knowledge, I am a human being with, you know, volition and will. But who knows? Who knows? That's it. 
I like it. Well, I appreciate you coming on here and talking with me. Thank Thanks you again. Great. I appreciate it.